good evening here and good morning to those joining from Singapore. <clears throat> I think this may be our one of the last two or three sessions of uh, SNBN with me and then next venerable will be teaching this. So it has been a great honor uh, to be filling in for Venerable to this point and then maybe one or two more sessions and very likely we'll finish that chapter. <laughs> but as we are coming closer to the end, it becomes topic, the subject matter becomes more harder and harder. So we'll, we'll have some of those discussed tonight, I think. So anyway, it has been a great honor and I welcome you all to this yet another SNBN session together. And this book is so aptly called Samsara Nirvana, Buddha Nature, kind of giving us an introduction to the reality, both of both the ends, and then as well as the connection that joins those two realities. So this has been a great opportunity to reflect on those. Every time I think of this session, I'm automatically brought to think about samsara at the one end, nirvana at the other end, and then the Buddha nature that connects the two. So I hope likewise it has been informing you this way. So we'll spend the first few minutes in silent meditation, settling our mind and body to set the right mental tone, to engage in this sharing. So I welcome you to find yourself in a comfortable position and whatever method works for you to settle the mind, feel free to choose that, use that in settling the mind, in quieting it, yet at the same time retaining the mind's clarity, focus, and yes, some degree of delight, joy, enthusiasm in finding oneself in this session at this moment.
let's visualize the merit field Buddha Shakyamuni in the space above us, facing us, surrounded by his disciples from all lineages, to one's present spiritual teachers. Think of them mostly in terms of their inner qualities. In the case of the Buddha, all of the inner qualities having reached consummate, blossoming, consummate, accomplishment. And those of Bodhisattvas and others in their respective stages of advancement, likewise possessing those degrees of inner qualities, those of them beyond the path of seeing, having reached a state of security. And thus have only to look for successive, continuous progression along the path until full awakening. While thinking of these qualities, pause a little bit in seeing the difference between where we are, where they are, how they got there. Mainly accounting for that with the conditions that we have in, that we have yet to work on. Mainly afflictions and the actions induced by them and the sufferings that they entail. Along with seeing how it was possible for them to achieve it, given the efforts they made, let this also fill us with a sense of hope and inspire us to strengthen our determination we never waver from the path that we have landed on almost accidentally. Think of ourselves being surrounded by sentient beings, fellow sentient beings, all in human form, for the convenience of conducting this visualization together, while at the same time, undergoing their own predicaments, typical of their own respective realms of existence. Think of how among the sentient beings also, how we are varied, how we differ in what type of suffering among the three mainly preoccupies us. Think of the conditions from the grosser level of gross 
suffering of pain, to more subtle suffering of change, ever susceptible to fall into gross suffering, while at the same time the conditions of temporary pleasantness themselves being saved in this inescapable condition of ever ready to slide into manifest pain. And in both of these cases, underpinned by the condition of being bound to the afflictions and the actions induced by them, and that's the sufferings entailing. Take a moment in thinking how this all happens. Ultimately, they all boil down to the afflictions. The afflictions, at least those that we recognize, they are more of a manifest representation of a deeper misunderstanding in the form of ignorance. How ignorance is totally unfounded in reality, yet at the same time, through continuous habituation, it has built its stronghold within us, thus unleashing this cycle of afflictions, afflicted karmas, their sufferings, while at the same time, in the middle of all these, reintroducing another cycle, another cycle. So reflecting on the conditions of fellow sentient beings, including oneself. Be realistic in acknowledging of the unpleasant inconvenient situation, yet at the same time be filled with the hope that yes, there is a way out of it, given what it is rooted in, nothing but an ignorance, completely misconstruing the reality. So this way, generate a sense of compassion towards oneself, towards others, given the condition we are steeped in, yet at the same time, accompany that with a sense of hope for oneself and others. And given our slightly vantage point of not only having afflictions, but recognizing afflictions for what they are, knowing what they are, afflictions are rooted in, thus how they are possible to be eliminated, eradicated, and what the path for that is, will a 
sense of duty towards fellow sentient beings, given the vantage point, vantage place, situation we have in volunteering to do what we can in making the most of this opportunity so that we could uplift each and every one of us from this unnecessary yet so tangled situation of mess, suffering. With that as the motivation, motivation, let's now join together in paying homage to Shakyamuni Buddha. To the teacher endowed, transcendent destroyer, the oneless gone, poet destroyer, completely and fully awakened one. Perfect in knowledge and good conduct, one contemplates, nor the world's supreme guide of beings to be attained. Teacher of gods and humans, you, the Buddha endowed, transcendent destroyer, the glorious conqueror, Shakyamuni, I prostrate, make offerings, and go for refuge. When, O supreme among humans, you are born on this earth, you pay seven strides and said, I am supreme in this world. You arise and I bow. With your bodies formed supremely fine, wisdom ocean like a golden mountain. Fame that blazes in the three worlds, you are the best supreme guide to you, I bow. With a supreme science, face like a spotless moon, color like gold to you, I bow. You are immaculate, the three worlds are not incomparable, wise one to you, I bow. Great compassionate protector, all-knowing teacher, field of merit and good qualities, vast as an ocean to the Tathagata, I bow. Through purity, freeing from attachment, through virtue, freeing from lower rungs. Unique, supreme, ultimate reality to the Dharma that is peace, I bow. Having freed themselves, showing the path to freedom too, well established in the trainings. The holy field endowed with good qualities to the Sangha I bow. Do not commit any non-virtuous actions, perform only perfect virtuous actions. Subdue your mind completely, this is the teaching of the Buddha. A star, a mirage, a flame of a lamp, an illusion, a drop, a dew, a bubble. A dream, a flash, a lightning, a cloud, see condition things as such. Through this merit, may sentient beings attain the state of all saints to be the full thoughts, and be delivered from the ocean of cyclic existence, perturbed by the waves of aging, sickness, and death. This ground anointed with perfume, Whatever form is suitable for salvation. 
mistaken, entangled love, we may be, we may be with regard to the ultimate reality of things, including ourselves. Yet it is something that could be mended, that could be addressed, and thus come closer and closer to fully understanding reality, thus exposing for the first time to the fullest how unfounded these ignorances, and thus shaking the whole ground foundation for all the rest of the afflictions in a sweeping way. And that opens the path to not only weakening the afflictions, but if we persist in our path, we'll be able to reach to their roots and take them out, thus rendering the afflictions never to come back. That means all the karmas, remaining karmas that we may have, both contaminated positive ones or negative ones, they would all be left with no further, no further causes in the afflictions to give rise to them, to give rise to more of them. And for any of them remaining within us, we'll be left with no conditions to activate them ever anymore. If we persist in this path, then eventually we'll be able to even touch the subtle stains of these afflictions. Though not being able to give rise to afflictions anymore, yet at the same time, they have their own bad effects, negative effects on us, particularly in keeping us from being fully awakened. Seeing in this way, feel enthused, encouraged, inspired, to persist on this path, endure the hardships, and bring it to full awakening, full fruition in the form of full awakened state. Was that end, we have still to refine our understanding of the reality, ultimate reality, together with strengthening our positive emotional components of the path in the form of love, compassion, bodhicitta. And towards that end, we are going to listen, partake 
take part in this sharing. And we imagine all the rest of the sentient beings doing the same. so that every one of us can progress along the path and thus be of support, inspiration to each other. All of them aiming at full awakening for the sake of all the rest of the sentient beings. So let's make this the motivation for tonight's sharing. And I wanted to add that in dealing with afflictions in a very strong, affirming, assertive way, it has to have a very good foundation, both in terms of understanding, but, but more so of the internalization of the teachings. And for that, the basis is the concentration practice. And for that, in turn, the basis is the practice of morality. So with such a clear view, we can see how the path unfolding was provided we make the efforts is very possible. In this regard, I want to direct your attention to the prayer we make, uh, homage to Buddha Shakyamuni, where there is this mention of Perfect in knowledge and good conduct. Yeah, I saw the same translation in other uh, other renditions. By the way, this bulk of this opening uh, prayer, where we recite or list so many of the Buddha's qualities, they come straight from sutras so interesting and and i looked at some translations of that sutra even they also they have uh resorted to translating it as perfect knowledge and good conduct something like that the tibetan term is rikpa dang shapsu demba rikpa is wisdom shapsu demba it's 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 like foundation, good foundation. But literally, it means good footing. And what we are translating as perfect knowledge, figuratively, it, it can be translated as I, 
with, with, with strong, clear eye in a body that has a very good footing, with the body, in the body, with a very good footing, or with the two feet, I should either say two feet firmly on the ground, in a body that has a very clear eye. So the eye part is the training of wisdom, and the two foot, well-grounded, well-founded, are the training of morality and training of concentration, when we speak of three trainings. And here it is listed as one of the qualities as, more as pointing to what caused, what led to Buddha's full awakening with these qualities, among others, because of having trained with these three components intact. If we look at this same thing through the lens of the eightfold path, again, perfect in knowledge of the I or the wisdom part of it is the right wisdom, and the rest are included in the so-called good conduct, good footing. Yeah, so every time we read it, it should be kind of reminding us the need of really really grounding our practice in the three trainings and knowing the place of them. Uh, it's with, with two feet, very strong, healthy, in a body, healthy body, with a very clear eye that one will be able to really go in the direction one wants to go. So likewise, uh, in the motivation, uh, we could tie that in, in seeing that the effort paying forth in making a dent in the, in the body of afflictions, if you will, is through these three trainings in which there is order. And the first one is the training of morality where we we kind of begin to work on the afflictions inside from outside in, given our level of initial training. We can first deal with the, the outside expressions in the body and the speech of these afflictions and keeping them from having any outlet and thereby preparing us to zoom in and actually deal with the afflictions and weaken them. Because by indulging in these expressions, we kind of give the uh, afflictions the undeserving strength and habituation and, if you will, the muscles being trained through expression. But when we de deprive them of this expression, we are, in a way, in an indirect way, weakening it and then eventually prepares us to to actually face them, encounter them, and then launch our next strategy of concentration. Because concentration, even if it does not see through the afflictions in the way wisdom does, but concentration practice, particularly from the, from the shamatha beyond, particularly in terms of the absorptions and stabilizations, they really go deep in dealing with the afflictions. So much so that the 
their 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 force their their force can reach the root of the afflictions, though not succeeding in uprooting them, but weakening them. And so much so that uh, the manifestation, the afflictions becoming manifest will be less frequent, less strength, less enduring. But then ultimately it depends on the wisdom of understanding, the wisdom, different wisdoms, uh, understanding impermanence, selflessness, gross selflessness, and whatnot, but eventually uh, the understanding of the subtlest dependent origination in the form of the emptiness of inherent existence that can really, that can really kind of actually, what do you call, totally unlock or unhinge unhinge the hold of the afflictions on us. And when that is persisted, it will then eventually let go of that grip on us. So, so just as we, we all do regularly, it's important to remember the essential the essential role of these three trainings, both in terms of how to train in them, in terms of the order of following them, and thus deciding on what to focus on more at any given stage, and at the same time preparing to build them together so that they could be brought to a very strong level, all of them, and thus be made to work in tandem in really giving force to the path. Okay, so that said, we have to come to the book, otherwise we will not finish it. <laughs> yeah, we only have two pages, two and the, two and the two, three, two and the one fourth page. Yeah. Yes, I have to remember there is a question also. So uh, we were looking at page 286 under the caption of levels of mind, right? We finished the first, first paragraph. Okay, so then in highest yoga tantra, the levels of mind are differentiated by the physical condition of the body when the sense faculties are active, the sense consciousnesses function, they are the course, courses level of mind. The dream state is a little subtler because at that time the sense faculties do not function. And maybe many of our bodily functions have been, yeah, it's the same thing as sense faculties. Many of them are kind of go dormant, although other parts, particularly brain, brain is active. But other than that, the gross body, majority of them are dormant, non-functioning, at least not as much as when we are awake. 
So it's here the settled, settled, settledness of the mind is spoken of in terms of what level of grossness of physical body it is depending on. So although the brain is still active and the eyes are eyes move during REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And then further deeper than that is deep sleep or fainting. They are even subtler. Then I think we can include coma state as being even subtler or maybe as subtle. Yeah, it's interesting when we think of think back of that person who was trapped in his body for 12 years, right? Yeah, 12 years, out of which only in the second year he became aware of himself, trapped in that situation. Otherwise, two solid years just went by without even being aware of himself. Yeah, so that seemed to be quite subtle, with almost, except for the brain part, that two not, all of them, because the doctors try to really sense whether he is aware or not by looking at all the means. They couldn't find it. That means even the brain weren't active as much as uh, it could be in other times. So that speaks of how the dependence of the body is much lesser, yet still there is a state of consciousness. So that could be considered more subtle. The subtlest level of mind, which can function ap apart from the physical body, manifests at the time of death. So before that, I've been insisting the subtlest level of mind uh, be reserved, not just only for the uh, subtlest clear that mind of death or some or like like it but even include the prior three states of mind called the mind of Namakalamba, whitish appearance, the mind of reddish increase, and the mind of Chabanalamba. Namakalamba, Chabamalamba, Nyatopnalamba, the mind of near blackish near attainment. <laughs> when you translate them like this, it's <laughs> interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah, even those should be included into the category of subtlest. Though they are not the subtlest, but they are subtlest. I insist on that because His Holiness in his teachings insists on that also. They are the subtlest. Within the subtlest there is even degree of subtlety. <laughs> if we can say so. so. So yeah, so that's, so within them, there's a degree, and there the subtlety could also be explained along the same line of how dependent they are on what grosser level of body. So here, when we speak of physical body, or maybe in the way Venerable is using the term physical body here, 
the certain level of mind which can function apart from the physical body means without, not being dependent on it. So that means physical body in a gross, in 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 the gross sense. So in that sense, the subtlest, all the three, all the four subtlest levels of mind, do not depend on the physical body, but rather on their respective wind energy. Because by the time of the fourth dissolution, then the dependence on the gross body has stopped. Oh, okay, so, so the subtlest level of mind which can function apart from the physical body manifests either at the time of death or very soon prior to that. This fundamental innate clear light mind, now you have to pronounce this for me, <laughs> the Tibetan transliteration. Nyukma Lenshik Kebes Reselgi Sem. Nyukma, yeah. Nyukma has a connotation of being perennial, ever present, perennial, being perennial, Nyukma. So, so in the case of us here, the residents and the, and the guests, the residents will be called those who are living here, Nyukma. So Nyuma has a connotation of perennial, persistent. In a way, only that state of mind, the subtlest of the subtlest, right? Only that deserves this characterization of being Nyuma. All the rest are advantageous uh, in relation to this. And this particularly we are speaking from the perspective of the highest yoga tantra, right? Which we consider to be the, the most ultimate intent of the Buddha. Although, in, luckily, unfortunately, when it comes to the view of understanding what emptiness, the object's clear light, it's the same as the sutra, prasangika madhimika level. But when we bring in the subjective component to it, then it becomes very uncommon uncommon, unique, uh, from the Sutra iteration. But when it comes to the nature of mind, the nature, the conventional nature of mind, yes, what highest Yoga Tantra brings on the plate is totally unheard of, unspoken of in the Sutra, in the Sutra level. It's kind of deliberately held back. Okay, this fundamental innate clear light mind, so which has the connotation of Nyuma means perennial, Lenjikyeva means innate, Lenjikyeva means something that comes together with you, Lenjikyeva, that is always with you, never separate from you. All the rest of the mind or consciousness can be separate from oneself, but not this at all. And this is very essential. This concept of the this fundamental clear light mind is very in, in very essential and in really establishing uh, what even the sutra schools claim in terms of the four bodies of the Buddha and the Buddha's continued uh, abidance 
and the continuous, unending enlightened activity, etc., all can be established ultimately on the basis of this, not on other, other levels of consciousness. Claims could be made, but when asked for uh, supporting reasonings, uh, they would all fall short of a really, uh, what you call, uh, really, um, authentic or convincing uh, reasoning or, or reasoning that would be full 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 proof human that which is a reason in this way that which is a reason the clear light mind that has a reason always together with us, together with us in a manner of being always with us. So this fundamental clear light, innate clear light mind is accompanied by a very subtle wind. So every mind has a wind component with it. And then the subtlest clear light mind, the subtlest of the subtlest has its own corresponding subtlest of the subtlest wind as its mount, which is its mount. This subtlest mind and subtlest wind are one entity, but nominally different. I remember having a hard time understanding this concept of one entity, different, different isolates, <laughs> to use even a, a, even a Buddhist jargon, a philosophical jargon. Mm -hmm. Isolate is, what in the world is isolate? But it makes sense with the Tibetan, but in terms of inner, in, English world, it also it almost sounds like isotopes. <laughs> so anyway, this clear light, settlers clear light mind, and settlers wind are one entity, but different, nominally different. In terms of speaking, whether something is of one entity or not, it is all it is done. It is it is established uh, in terms of how the two things, or the three things, four things that you call them to be one entity, appears to a empirical consciousness. When you have to establish something being different, that difference has to be established in reference to a conceptual thought. So two things can be of one entity, depending on how they appear to a, say if it is a visual thing, how it appears to an eye consciousness. If it is an audible thing, and how it appears to a air consciousness, it's like that. So these are all empirical consciousnesses. But when you establish, and even if it may appear to be, to be almost inseparable, right, almost inseparable, to a, to a sense consciousness or to a direct perception, to a direct perception, they can, they can appear very different to a conception. So things could be one with regard to in the eyes of a perception, perceptual consciousness, but different in the eyes of a conceptual, conceptual consciousness. 
and based on that, their relationship could be established in the way it is done. They are one entity, but different isolates. And that's the case with this consciousness, in a way, by extension, with all the consciousness in, in relation to their corresponding winds. They are one entity, but they are one entity, but different isolate. That is, one cannot exist without the other, although they can be spoken of separately. Yeah, that's a very, very smart way of putting it. They cannot exist without the other. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Though they can be spoken of separately. Yeah. Okay, so we'll push through, okay? It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, because I know, I, I, I've read through this. I've come prepared. So <laughs> I could go off track and then dwell on something here, but that's not due. Down there we can come. <laughs> the term clear light has various meanings. So long as we do not say clear light, mind, mere clear light is something that can apply to non-mind things also. Like we say, everything is in the nature of clear light, right? Everything. We have a recitation after lunch where it says that, right? In one of the sutras, do you remember? Yeah, everything has the nature of clear light. So even books, cups, everything has, not just the mind. So long as we do not add clear light mind, we just speak of clear light, then it could be understood in so many different contexts, depending on the context. In the Sutra vehicle, it refers to the clear and cognizant nature of the conventional mind. That's the mere luminosity and knowing nature of the conventional mind is called clear light. But when we speak in those terms, then it is applicable only to mental phenomena. That kind of a luminosity, knowing component cannot be found in non-mind, non-mental things. Book cannot know. Although I have a book which, of which the title says, What the Plant Know, What the Plants Know. I've been meaning to read it <laughs> and see, do plants really know? of this chemically sense. <laughs> so it refers to, in the Sutra vehicle, it refers to the clear and cognizant nature of the conventional mind, which is the subject clear light, uh, which is a clear light in regard to a subject phenomena, subjective phenomena. So there we are speaking of clear light in terms of the minds being luminous in nature and knowing in nature. So when I speak, when I think of luminous in nature, I really, to, to kind of make a case for these two components of luminous and knowing or cognizant, I think of luminosity more in terms of reflective, reflective nature, like that of a mirror, like that, or that of a surface of a water, reflective. But on top of being reflex, reflective, which could be seen as being shared by other things, what the mind has an additional component is that of knowing, of sensing, of feeling. That subjective connection is something 
very, very peculiar to mental things. And I suspect even brain doesn't have that. Yeah, even brain doesn't have that. Because I've seen in, the, in, my, in my works of translations, all they speak of is, what is that? Chemical, chemical uh, connection and electrical, yes, electrical, chemical, not other than that. And those are different. Through electricity, power, through chemical power, you cannot have that kind of a subjective connection. Yeah, one could sense in the in a very technical sense as as chemically sensing it does affecting it, but not have that subjective private quality of connecting with it. So that's what I allocate or allude to the cognizant aspect. So combine those two combined together, then it becomes a very, very unique quality of only mental things. And then, so here saying the mind is clear light implies that the afflictive obscurations and cognitive obscurations are adventitious and do not exist in the nature of the mind. Yes, here, all of the obscurations, all the defilements uh, could be seen as not partaking of the mind that it is with in terms of being in the nature of that mind. And, and that's because the mind is essentially, uh, ultimately, uh, undefiled in that, undefiled in their nature by any, any obscuration. Not necessarily positive, but not negative. By its very luminous and cognizant nature, we are just speaking of its fundamental nature, yet non, neither virtue nor non-virtuous. Deminduje. Uh, what do you? How do you translate deminduje? Deminduje. Non. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Non-associated. Miscellaneous factors. Miscellaneous factors. Miscellaneous factors. When you say miscellaneous factors, that is more in the context of when we speak of the five five aggregates, then that is definitely miscellaneous because it has within that baggage so many of the mental, mental factors even. But here, many, many of the mental factors together with this so-called demindige, non-associated composition factor. Ah. Abst, yeah, what do you call that? Abst, yeah, abstract composites, okay, abstract composites, yes. Yeah, they definitely are abstract composites. So, yeah, so, hmm, uh, I'm mixing two things together. This one thing is abstract. Yeah, the other thing is deminduje. Uh, no, no, no. What is lumate? Yeah, something that is neither virtuous, nor non-virtuous, neutral. Yes, neutral. Yeah, I was speaking of that neutral thing, not the Menduji. It's a different thing. Oh, they are so abstract to be mixed together, yeah. 
both of them are abstract. Yeah, so I was saying that in terms of, when it comes to uh, speaking of the set, the fundamental clear or luminous and cognizant aspect of the mind, as fundamental and essential it is in really uh, giving us the hope for improvement of our condition, uh, that that aspect itself is neutral in nature. And because of that, it allows for something positive supported by valid cognition to be made uh, a constant uh, component of it. Because there's a room for that. But to begin with, it is not virtuous. Okay. Um, and then the second one, the second term, the second context is emptiness of the mind, which is the subject, object clear light, the ultimate nature of mind. So yes, but it is not just merely confined to the mind. All the emptinesses of everything is clear light in this nature. Just as in one of the recitations after lunch also says that all phenomena in the nature of clear light. So their clear light is, every clear light is the uh, emptiness nature of the phenomena. And that is called clear light in that, uh, in that uh, all the obstacles to making change is cleared. <laughs> all the obstacles to the possibility of changing is cleared. <laughs> I'm just making up. Uh, but that's what it is, right? Because of things being empty of inherent existence, they are malleable, they can be changed. Yeah? So thus they are clear because of a particular defilement being never present there. What is that defilement? A defilement which is non-existent non in the first place, which is inherent existence. Yeah. So inherent existence is the defilement of which the clearance we are speaking of when we think of all phenomena being in the nature of clear light. Okay? So that's why, that's how even the mind, it applies to the mind also, but not confined to that. The emptiness of the mind, which is the object in the mind, is the ultimate nature of the mind. Likewise, the emptiness of phenomena, all the phenomena, they are object clear light. Okay, let's let's push let's push through a little bit. In both Sutra and Tantra, the subject clear light is the awareness that cognizes the object clear light. However, the subject clear light mind spoken of in Tantra is far subtler. Yeah, okay, in both Sutra and Tantra, the subject clear light is the awareness that cognizes the object clear light. However, the subject clear light mind spoken of in Tantra is far subtler. Yes, because, because when we speak of clear light in the term, in, in the sense of mere luminosity and cognizance, that's something shared by all consciousnesses, both in Sutra context and Tantra context. And when we have the object clear light mind, object clear light 
in the form of emptiness to be discerned and understood and whatnot, it is done through this agency of, of the consciousness, which all uh, have, which all have this subject clear light in the sense of the fundamental luminous and cognizant nature. However, the subject clear light mind spoken of in Tantra is far subtler. This innate clear light mind, is a special mind because it is the is the source or basis of all phenomena of samsara and nirvana. Now I hit a blockade here. I hit against the wall here. I cannot go further. <laughs> this is this is a big topic. This innate clear light mind is a special mind because it is the source or the basis of all phenomena of samsara and nirvana, which means source of everything. This subtlest mind continues, okay, continues from one life to the next. Okay, we will not continue from there for a while. From one, one word to the another one, we'll just dwell there and explain it. <laughs> Okay, let me prepare. <laughs> so in Buddhism, in general, we come across so many statements of similar similar of similar hmm. implication of similar intention of similar implication that that's ultimately it's the mind that things depend on such as our suffering our happiness depends on our mind if our mind is tamed there's no, 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 no force in the world, in the universe, to stop us from enjoying, experiencing happiness. If our mind is undefiled and it is not tamed, then no force can ever help us in experiencing happiness. But we have to suffer from that. So it's the mind that 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 frees us and that also traps us. So in that respect, we can speak of our prospect of happiness and suffering being dependent on mind. And that is a different context. We can understand that. That means when we train our mind and uh, deal with the afflictions that cause the suffering, through our own inner work, we can make happiness a reality. Otherwise, we will be subject to suffering, which is what we have been doing all throughout, all throughout in the samsara, under the, under the bondage, under the slavery, captivity of the afflictions. And that's one of the reasons why afflictions are so, so easy to arise within us. Sometimes even soon after birth, one of the afflictions arise and and babies cry 
<laughs> or maybe not as soon as that, but yeah, no, much later, they sh- show clear indication of affliction step. That's because of habituation, mind being untamed. So, so that's one, one level of speaking of things being dependent on the mind, that the mind being the basis or the source. But that's different. And then there is this reference in the sutras where, where there's a clear reference. By the way, this is a statement that the Shittamatras and Prasangik Madhavikas scramble to interpret it in their way. <laughs> so Shittamatras say, oh, see, what we claim is right. Even the Buddha says it so explicitly. The three worlds come from Buddhism. The three worlds are nothing but mind, right? The three worlds are nothing but mind. I think that's in Dasha Bhumi, in the Ten Ground Sutra. And they scramble. They say, oh, this is giving credence to my position, my position. <laughs> not, not, as, not, not literally so, scrambling, not literally. But they have to have some source in the Buddha, in the Buddha's statement. So from a Chittamatra point of view, they're saying all the three worlds are nothing but mind. And how is that? They, they explain it differently by saying things are mere mind, only mind, in the sense that everything, uh, it's, when, we, when we touch on the nitty-gritty details, one will find uh, some problems uh, with this, and would have to come up with uh, with uh, patch up, patch, patch up works to kind of conform to the main statement. And in any case, in the sense of the Chitramatra, everything is mind. It's not just in everything is mind, but in the nature of the mind, in that. Ultimately, they all boil down to mental dispositions, mental latencies being activated. So, so it's it's from a Parsangika Madhyamika point of view, it's an extreme. It's an extreme. Of course, it is an extreme uh, position, uh, but nonetheless, having a very very powerful impact in dealing with our afflictions. In dealing with our afflictions, because by such a claim. What they are uh, refuting and negating is anything external to the mind. Everything is in the nature of the mind. It's almost like a projection of the mind, almost to the extent of saying it's like the mind's rich kind of covers them. If it wanted, it could withdraw it along with the thing itself into the mind. If wanted, or if, if, if it could be done, that's what would happen. If mind will withdraw, nothing is there outside. <laughs> Although they do not necessarily speak in those terms, but what they propose in that everything being mere activation of the uh, mental latency, which, by the way, happened to be shared both by the subjective mind and its objective counterpart, both of them being and being a result or a manifestation of that latency. And because of that, they say there is no subject-object duality. 
the subject object there may there may be a subject object there but there the duality is not there essentially because they are both in the nature of the mind so that's another take to this which uh, which is not what prasangika madhyamikas approve and no do not even prasangika madhyamikas even before that sautantrika mad sautantrika madhyamika sautantrika Mm, not just Sautantrika. Within the Sautantrika, there is two. There are two schools, right? One is Yogacara, Yogacara leaning. The other is Sautantrika leaning. So that schools, the one leading towards Sautantrika, together with Prasangika Madhimika, they do not, uh, they do not approve of this statement, this stand of the Chitta Madras. And what do the Prasangika Madhimikas come up with? Uh, Prasangika Madhimikas, not the, uh, the Sautantrika. Uh, although they have their own take of what, how things ultimately exist. So in the case of the Prasangika Madhimika, they say everything is merely designated. And thus by way of being necessarily dependent on designation, from a mind, from a subjective mind, necessarily. That's how it, that's how it seemed to align with this statement that everything, without exception, is uh, comes from comes from mind, or the mind is the basis of all of them. But and that's something approved. That's something acceptable, even in the highest yoga tantra and beyond from Prasangika Madhimika and beyond, including highest yoga tantra. But that's not what they mean when they say the subtlest clear light mind is is the root of all, everything there is in samsara and, and nirvana. There they are speaking particularly in terms of, not in terms of designation, but in terms of the subtlest clear light mind, the subtlest of the subtlest clear light mind being the source or the basis of everything there is. Now the question is how that is the case? Do we mean source in the sense of being generated by it or in other terms? So we can we can think of I mean, when it comes to individual beings, we can make a sense of how it is the source of everything with regard to an individual. Because we as individual beings, ultimately, we have the subtlest, subtle, the subtlest, subtlest clear mind and the component and its accompanying wind uh, energy as our basis of designation. When we kind of trace the basis of designation, ultimately it boils down to the subtlest clear light mind and its accompanying wind energy of, our, of, of, our, of ourselves individually as the source of it. And even when we are born or when we die, when we are born, that's where we recede back and come from. And then on that basis we can make a case of how 
when we die, the grosser levels of our mind and the body uh, recedes in, in, in terms of its functionality and recedes into the subtlest wind and the energy. Likewise, when we are born, uh, as soon as we are born, as soon as we go into Bharto, it has already reverted back into a grosser level of mind and, and, and body. And then it keeps on becoming grosser and grosser and grosser until we hit the dissolution stage close to death. Then again, we go back into that, uh, into that process of becoming settler. So we can make sense of that in, in terms of individual beings. Now the question is, how does it relate to the out, out, outside elements? Outside element, including the universe. Because the subtlest clear light mind is definitely is pointed, is what is pointed to as the source. And subtlest clear light mind is something that we individually have. There's no something as collective subtlest consciousness, right? If, if, if that's the case, so, so if that's the case, then how do we account for the world outside of individual beings, including the universe, being sourced in the subtlest clear light mind? One way of thinking of that is when we are around, even the environment, even we, we have a part, a role in the environment. When we, as one person, lives, we take with us our contribution, our contribution to the environment, not just that, our share of the environment with us. The plants that I will be treating, I'll be, I'll be walking on, the etc etc will i don't know if they will miss me after i'm gone but definitely they would have one less effector or whatever so it so so the connection uh, just as in the in individual body when we grow uh, the wind energy uh, in tandem with other elements, uh, work, and in the process of becoming grosser and grosser, each one of them kind of takes the more prominent aspect. And not just the elements themselves, but we, we, we have something called, in, in, even with the wind energy, wind element, we have something called the wind of the wind element, the wind of the earth element, the wind of the space element, the wind of the mind element, and likewise with other elements. Uh, so they account for uh, progressive growth. And like they are rooted in the wind energy, uh, they, when they recede, they kind of recede back. But then the connection between our wind I mean, in a way, we hear this, particularly we heard this from Venerable Pende 
making this connection between how what we breathe in, what we breathe in is from our side, and what we and we let it out. Uh, so there is this 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 give and take uh, between what we call our inner wind with the outside wind, likewise with our inner earth element with the outside earth element, uh, like that. Uh, there is some some connection there, uh, but nonetheless. Uh, the the main thing is to make the connection between how we as individuals uh, have have a role in 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 bringing into uh, the external world and withdrawing from the external world. So in this regard, Kung Tang, one of the Tibetan masters, have given this example of suppose there are hundred lamps lighted in a place. Right in a dark place, uh, all of them contributing to the glow. And when you take one away, another away, it may not be that manifest, but nonetheless, its share of glow is taken back. And it will be apparent when you take sizable number of lamps away, and then the darkness comes. It will be clear how each one was contributing to the outside glow. Right. So likewise, uh, he makes this connection. He makes this. He makes this uh, point that yes, we as individuals uh, have, we bring in to the environment and we take it back with us. But now the question is, when the world, ha world begins, we begin with, at least from the Buddhist cosmology, we begin with the outside world and then the inhabitants come. But we say that that's not a problem. For it is not necessary for them to be working at the same time. It's the force of their karma, force of their karma that that goes into contributing it. So anyway, this is uh, this is a frequently appearing statement in the highest yoga tantra context, and to make this case of how everything is is eventually source in the in the subtlest clear that mind how the total sum of our subtlest clear that mind together with this accompanying uh, energy is the reason for the outside world and how it it it, it is it, it could be what you call uh, it could recede into, into that. But in terms of seeing it actually uh, in action would be difficult because we do not go in and out. We do not come together. We do not go out together. Yeah. But this, this level of dependence on the mind, I heard His Holiness the Dalai Lama say that it's even uh, subtler than, than saying everything is merely designated by a designating mind. So saying that this is subtler than emptiness in terms of the relationship between mind and, uh, and, and the environment. Okay, so I think uh, 
I, I think we will leave there. And then I, there is a question from last time, which we touched on a hard topic, and I surely anticipated questions, and there is one. <laughs> that has to do with whether emptiness can be purified. And whether whether there is such thing as called possibility of progressively purifying the purifying emptiness. Uh, in terms of the scriptures being very clear about this, is no no question. If you want, you can look at page one fifty two fifty three of the uh, illumination of the intent of the English, page 152-53 of the Illumination of Intent, beginning in English there, that's in the fifth chapter, towards the very close and end of the fifth chapter, this topic comes about whether, whether the truth of cessation is an ultimate truth or not. Uh, if so, uh, then that would have to be a, an object uh, in the face of a equipoise, what is that? Mm. Direct equipoise directly uh, realizing emptiness. But then the questioner has this this doubt. My, I, and by the way, the question is from among us. <laughs> uh, usually, I do not name people. That's uh, maybe here we maybe there may be a cultural gap. From my cultural point of view, uh, I feel uncomfortable <laughs> calling my uh, name. But in in the, the culture here, maybe totally okay. But anyway. Uh, says, my thoughts on some of, some of what Gishila said about purifying the emptiness of a defilement of, yeah. Oh, yeah, purifying the emptiness of a defiled mind. Emptiness, so, the, the, so it's more in the sense of, in the form of a comment or sharing of the thought. So there's a question as such. So it's, it goes like this. Emptiness does not need to be purified because it is undefiled in the first place. Maybe the person is drawing this statement based on what we have just spoken of as emptiness. All emptiness is being clear light and thus being cleared of their corresponding defilement. Here the defilement is nothing but a non-existent. Non-existent thing, non-existent. <laughs> Non-existent. So he says, emptiness is pure and undefiled in the in the get go, in the get go, and there cannot be emptiness becoming impure in the meantime or needing purification. The emptiness of samsara and emptiness of nirvana are of one taste. Yes. So the person is drawing from these statements that we have already gone through. They are of one taste. 
and it is a pure, it is a clear light, right? And it is undefiled. It is not the case that the emptiness of a defiled mind and the emptiness of samsara together, defiled mind and samsara, both on the side of a defilement, are defiled, while the emptiness of an undefiled mind on the one hand and of nirvana on the, uh, together with it, on the side of a pure, 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 pure thing, are undefiled. Neither are defiled. So when it comes to emptiness, irrespective of whether it is on samsara or nirvana, whether it is on a defiled mind or undefiled mind, it is never ever defiled. So that's one question. So what I make it, what I make of it, is that there's this collation of what we are calling defilement happening here. In this context, the so-called defilement is the natural defilement, or the the or inherent existent, the non-existent object of negation, inherent existence having is taken as defilement. And in that respect, all emptinesses are free of such development. But when we speak of defiled mind, undefiled mind, we are there, we are speaking of defilement. When we speak of defiled mind, undefiled mind, we are speaking of defilement in the conventional sense, conventional defilement. So, Ultimately speaking, everything is free from defilement. Nothing is impure. And that's the connotation of when we say everything is of one taste in samsara and nirvana together. But here, when we speak of defiled mind and undefiled mind, and thus eventually from the path of seeing onward, a new phenomena enters into the space of this equipoise in the form of a cessation, in the form of a freedom of defilement. That definitely is in relation to a conventional defilement. So in terms of the mind really going through a purification or lessening of the mitigation of the conventional defilement is no question, right? There's no question. From the, from the, from the path of seeing onward, the mind, even though it shares in the pure emptiness with everything else, it definitely is defiled in the first place, and it undergoes a progressive, progressive reduction of that defilement in a very sure, irreversible way. And that's the reason why we're speaking of this new phenomena of cessation. Cessation setting on, on setting from the path of seeing onward. Now the question is whether the emptiness of that mind, at that mind, also shares in that cessation. In terms of, in terms of the cessation appearing to that equipoise mind, there are lots of quotations, including one, including from the works of Nagarjuna, that alludes to that, that alludes to, alludes to that. So the mind becoming less defiled in a very sure, irreversible way is unquestioned. Now the, now the question is whether the emptiness of that mind 
also shares in that purification, in that purity? That's the question. And in terms of statements, you will find very clear statements from the Prasangika Madhyamika point of view. Uh, let me share one here. here is, this is from the illumination of intent. Therefore, to speak of the truth of cessation as a conventional truth would indicate an incomplete analysis. Looked from a Prasangika point of view, the cessation, the truth of cessation is no more a conventional truth, rather it is an ultimate truth. If it is an ultimate truth having to do with having to do with dealing with the afflictions through the means only of seeing emptiness directly, then, then it has to appear, it has to be able to appear to, to such a wisdom. So that means it is an ultimate, ultimate truth. And if, if that cessation appears to the mind, of course we will say the cessation appears to the mind, the cessation has happened on the mind, because the mind is, mind is purified of that defilement. So the cessation does happen on the mind. The question is, does it also happen on the emptiness? Do they have, are they any, any more different? So, and then furthermore, there is this statement, however, as a given basis, as a given basis, as a particular basis becomes progressively more purified of stains, its ultimate nature too becomes progressively more purified. That's from the intent. Therefore, for certain types of basis, which means defiled, undefiled, so the certain type of basis is the undefiled, it is inadequate to leave its purity only one-sided. Its purity is not one-sided. Its purity is not just on account of purity from inherent existence, but additionally from being purified of a conventional defilement. Its purity must also include the purification of the relevant adventitious stains, and it is this, it is this that is called the truth of cessation. Now, when it comes to it is this, and explaining this, there is a disagreement. But in terms of it being the truth of cessation, appearing to the equipoise, no, no defeat. So the emptiness being purified is, 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 is a well-accepted statement, except we have to make a case for that. How it is very unique to the Prasangika Madhyamika point of view, and what the mechanism of purification looks like. How, because here, there is a huge role of emptiness in this, both in terms of this, the defilement being purified, because it is rooted in, ultimately rooted in nothing but a grasping at inherent existence. And then when it comes to the antidote also, nothing would work as thoroughly as a wisdom understanding emptiness. Now in terms of the mechanism of the purification also, it, 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 is, not, it is not in the sense of, to, to fighting bulls 
with their horns locked and trying to push one or the other, right? Like the, the, the defilement and the, with, and the antidote are together. That's not the way this mechanism works. Nor is it a case of someone with, with there being a vast, vast, already existing in the past, and then somebody reaches for a, a hammer and then breaks it. That's not the mechanism of purification here. Now, what is the third one? Yeah, the third one is, the, so the one was past, past vast, broken by a hammer, not this. The other one was two bulls fighting with their horns locked, which is both of them are present. That's not. Now the only pose is future, future one, right? Future defilement. Is it purifying? Is it, is it purifying in the sense of pushing something from pushing something? Yeah, pushing something from from pushing something away before it, it comes in, pushing something away. So not, not even that, <laughs> not even that. Something to come in the future, you push it from, from, uh, from coming, not even that. Because what you, what you purify is something that is, what you succeed in purifying is something that does not exist at all. Interesting. But something that would exist, it would happen if you were not to purify it. This mechanism of how this antidote and defilement works is so interesting. So look at, from those angles, this mechanism is so, so interesting and fascinating with everything to do with emptiness from one side to the other or everything. And thus, I know this is not so strong an argument, but still I'll push, push through it. Thus, emptiness definitely has something to partake of this purification, and thus, and thus come out a little different, <laughs> with part of it cleared. Slowly, 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 eventually at the time of the Buddha, the Buddha's omniscience emptiness is Dharmakaya in the purest sense. Okay, so when we have next time, we'll, we'll push through it a little bit. I think uh, we used up all of our time. What, what page is that from Illumination? Pardon? That you, you just read, what, what page is that from Illumination? 153. Okay. 152, 53. Towards the close of the last few paragraphs of the fifth chapter. Yeah, but this is very unique. It says the truth of cessation is never, never an ultimate, never a representation of the ultimate reality in any of the lower tenets. This is a new one. This is a new thing. And it has all to do with this unique position of how things ultimately exist, which is a totally new, un, uncommon stand of the Prasangika Madhimikas. So much so that it, it brings up a whole layer of afflictions. Afflictions associated with 
mistaking it, which is totally unheard of, unheard of, unsensed, unfelt by all the all the other previous tenets. Okay, so sorry, I took a little longer. Should we did again? Yeah. So, nonetheless, the mind does get purified, and it progressively does so. The question only is whether emptiness also gets to partake of it or not. Okay. May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path and all spiritual friends who practice it have long life. May I pacify completely all hindrances. Grant such inspiration, I pray. May the lives of the venerable spiritual mentors be stable, and their virtuous actions spread in the ten directions. May the light of love's teachings dispelling the darkness of the beings in the three worlds always increase. Idam Guru Radnamandala Kamniyatayami Due to this merit may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious body, not yet born, arise and grow. May the body have no decline, but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain, pure land, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful tending God's generosity, may you stay until samsara ends. May the deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma, done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders, who spread the view of dependent arising, and nonviolent actions in the ten directions, and especially Antrobasiyami in the West, who 